Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today's guest is an amazing author. He's the one author that our winners, as well as guests, routinely fan geek out over to be able to meet and talk to. Uh, His name's Larry Niven. He was working on his master's degree in mathematics when he dropped out to write science fiction. He broke into professional SF writing in 1964 and has been going strong ever since. Now a giant in the world of science fiction, he is best known for his known space future history, a still-growing series of more than 30 novels and stories. Ringworld, the most famous of these titles, won the Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Awards. He later co-authored a series of novels with fellow Rise of Future judge, the late Dr. Jerry Purnell, including the celebrated national bestsellers, The Moat in God's Eye, Lucifer's Hammer, and Footfall. Larry received the L. Ron Hubbard Lifetime Achievement Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Arts in 2006, and he has been a Writers of the Future judge since 1985. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. Or (laughs) anywhere. So, um, there's so many different things that I'm interested to, uh, to know from you. But basically, I gave an overview of your getting into writing science fiction. So I gave the, uh, the two-cent version. How about expanding on it a bit? Because a lot of people listening to this are aspiring writers and feel that what they have to overcome is more than they can handle. So if you can give me like your, your story, how you made in, into the uh, industry. Uh, brute force. <laughs> I, uh, I had run out of other options, so I sat down to write. I, uh, I signed up with a Back back of a magazine mail mail thing called uh, writers called famous writers school, and I got through about two thirds of their course. But by then I was already selling. Good. And when you broke in, did you break in? Was it novels or was it short fiction? I broke in with short fiction, uh, expanding pretty rapidly to uh, to a novella called World of Paths. Called World of Paths by uh, by Judy Lynn Del Rey, uh, who was working under uh, uh, Frederick Pohl at uh, Galaxy Magazine. Right. So we kept the title when when we expanded into into a novel. And then did you do that? Was that a co-authorship there? No, uh, no, I wouldn't have tried to co-author anything until I had learned how to write. And how long did, did that take you to do to where you felt like, okay, I can write now? How, how many books did you come out with or how many words had you written or, or any, any type of a, of a datum? I, I was not an instant set, uh, sales. I worked for a year uh, sending things out to be, to be bought or not bought uh, until Frederick Pohl bought my first story. So it took a year. Okay. Yeah. Because that's one thing that some people will think, oh, well, I'm not Larry Niven, and they don't realize yeah. that you had a runway. Yes. Uh, for me, it took a year. For others who might need a day job, it might take three or five. Right. That makes sense. So how, how frequently were you selling to before you were able to uh, make it an actual vocation that, uh, 
that you were able to survive on? I was born with a trust fund. So I was able to go, to become a writer just as soon as I got that $25 check. <laughs> okay. You're in that outside percentile of uh, aspiring writers, but it's nevertheless... Yeah, I'm on the fringes. Yeah. But it's still, you have to go through the process of, of being able to write something that's marketable and sellable in order to be able to establish yes. a career. I had to teach myself how to do that. So now you've, you had a, um, a master's degree in mathematics. How much did that contribute towards the science fiction that you um, were writing? I don't actually know. Mathematics doesn't always appear in my stories, perhaps not even often. But I needed a mathematical background to work on the ring world, for instance. And, and knowing how mathematics works, knowing how science works, is, is good for my writing, good for all of my writing. Sure. Yeah, I was going to bring up ring, ring World because there's very much um, that a whole system of mathematics has on its size, its dimensions, its uh, relationship to other um, systems. Yeah, I had to design it. Exactly. So how did you do that? Did you actually bring out a, a big piece of paper and, and design it, or was it done on a computer, or was it done just sketched out? There, there how, was a... There was a stack of paper, yes, and uh, and I ran across a math book in uh, in in a, in a friend's library while I was staying with him, and it, and it saved me from uh, doing badly with uh, with the rotation speed. I ha I found the right formula and came up with 770 miles per second rotational speed. For the ring world. And with that... Could have been embarrassing otherwise. <laughs> I was going to say, I know one thing that has come before on writing hard science fiction, you're somewhat uh, compelled to use real science to be it accurate. Otherwise, um, if you don't have the basis in, in reality, nobody's willing to suspend their disbelief to get to the actual science fiction part yes, of it. exactly. Uh, sometimes they will forgive egregious errors, sometimes they won't. You watch Star Trek, you know the science is being made up, you even know how. Uh, but me, they don't forgive. Yeah, that's... Um, have you had anybody challenging you on your science? Of oh, sure, from time to time. For the integral trees, uh, when it was, when it was uh, serialized in analog, Somebody wrote in saying that uh, trees wouldn't get that big and they'd spin end over end. And he could prove it. I didn't see his proof. Uh, I just took his word for it that I got it wrong. You got it wrong and then you changed it and, it was, and that was the end of the disputation? You know, I don't know whether he was talking through his hat. I don't really believe he, that, that I got it wrong because I submitted my designs to uh, Robert Forward of Hughes Research and, uh, and asked, asked him if I was sane. He said, yes, I was sane. And then he pointed out the winds that would turn uh, what I was calling stage trees, spoke trees, into the integral trees, into, the, into an integral sign shape. So that's, 
That was what he was. Um, yes. That's what he was challenging I have then. Often benefited from other people's uh, designs and advice. I get it. I remember talking with Hal Clement once when, as a judge. Um, this is obviously several years ago now. And he talked about, in fact, he even wrote an essay in Writers of the Future about how he got it wrong on science. And he just, you know, it was, there were so many comments on it that you've, he, he just said, you've got to get your science right. It's just, there's no excuse not to. Uh, yes. Uh, I remember the, the, the MIT people working on mesclin from uh, Mission of Gravity. Hal Clements, uh version of a, of a very heavy planet spinning very fast. Uh, it, it, it doesn't come out as an ellipsoid of rotation. It flattens into something more like a flying saucer. Right. Yeah, he, um, he joked about it, obviously, many, many years later, but he just said the lesson was definitely learned, and he was very willing. It's still, it's still your basic classic mission of gravity. Yeah. So on... Um, on writing science fiction, and so how did your Ring World or the Known Space series did it? How did it grow? What what made it so it went click and then just kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Uh, yes. Well, it turns out I'd made some, I'd left some things out in Ring World, and uh, various correspondents pointed it out to me. Uh, there was a class in Florida, school class that used Ringworld as a basis for a class, and uh, decided that the problem, the basic problem was that uh, ocean silt would gather and not move until, until all of the topsoil had occupied the oceans. So I put, I put in a pumping system for the Ringworld engineers. And also some attitude jets, because, of course, the ring world is unstable. And uh, made some other changes, too. Robert Heinlein said that ring world and the ring world engineers read like one novel. <laughs> they were 10 years apart. Wow. Yeah. And, and how many books are in, that, in the ring world series now? Um, four, plus... Some plus five collaborations with uh, with it, with uh, Ed Furman. Okay, I've got the right name. Yeah, I'm lousy with names. Well, you're great with storytelling. So, um, any any problem with the names will is more than made up for by the quality of your storytelling. So, on the um, one thing that you're definitely known for is is collaboration, and even Sean Williams this year, one of our past winners and now a contest judge, uh, was absolutely inspired by your essay, originally published in SIFWA, on, the, on this, the whole matter of collaboration. You had like several points you listed out, so I'd like to discuss a bit about um, your laws or rules of collaboration. Yeah, understand, uh, I've learned a lot more, I've done a lot more collaborating since I wrote that, so uh, I may have, I may make changes, and even as he might make changes. Perfect. Uh, writing uh, strategy points—that's uh, important. Uh, you 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 need mutual respect for your for each other's writing skills. So you probably are not writing with a uh, 
with a uh, novice. I've done that twice and it worked, but I but I said don't do it in my in in the uh, article. Is it something you and, had to carry? Uh, did you had to carry the yourself the, the heavy load when it was a novice versus with yourself? You had to carry the most of the weight for it, or was was it still balanced? Uh, collaborating with Stephen Barnes early on, I made him do a lot of the writing that I knew how to do because I I took it as a teaching uh, exercise. Okay. And the first thing I did. The easiest collaboration you can think of is if you give it up on a story, uh, hand it to you, hand it to the other guy, and say, "Can you do anything with this?" And if he can, you've won. And if you haven't, if if he can't, you've lost very little. You've already you've already given up on the story. Right. That's what I did with Stephen Barnes. It, our first story was. Uh, the locusts, and it was good enough to compete for a Hugo. Wow. Now, how important is it to establish at the, at the get-go if there's, you know, because with, with two, each person has a 50-50, you know, you know, yeah. decision. How, how do you work out, you know, if, the, if there's a conflict, who's going to make Usually the, it's an even split. Yeah. When uh, Stephen and Jerry and I work together, uh, we uh, it's a one it's a one third each, or rather it's thirty percent each plus the uh, plus the uh, uh, agents fee. Right, but in terms of writing the writing the story, if you've got a um, you hit an impasse and you want to go right and your co-author wants to go left. Is there anything you have to set up in advance to resolve that beforehand? Yeah, that's an important uh, rule. Uh, you must, as you begin your story, you don't start writing until uh, until uh, you've decided who has the, the, the whip hand. One yeah. of you has the veto power. Right. It doesn't mean you're not equal. It means one of you has the veto power. And and uh, and he may occasionally have to use it. Yeah. Uh, Jerry and I used it very little. It's mostly been me that has the veto power. Right. Uh, I've I've used it rarely. Because it seems like if you agree at the at the beginning, what's uh, you plot the story and agree upon it, then it should it should flow, and it would seem like that would be a the main solution to not having that come up in the future. Yes. Exactly. You decide early. Yeah. So now you've been involved with, um, you know, building a career and helping others with their careers. What would you recommend um, right now? I mean, we're, we're shut down, so there's no conventions. But in mm. terms of, of um, a writer getting started with science fiction, you know, these days, like there's, you know, things have changed a lot right now. Science is advancing rapidly with, um, you know, with uh, SpaceX and very real um, dedication towards achieving Mars. That, that was it, 20,000 satellites that uh, he's putting up right now for putting in the, so the whole planet can be in yeah. communication with each other. So It's true. Science has been good to us in, in terms of story ideas. 
and and facts to be used. Uh, but the publishing industry is in trouble. So how do you see uh, that? Yeah. I don't see much of a problem for me. My problem is uh, I've slowed way down in my writing. Uh, but I'm an established writer. I can sell stuff I wrote 50 years ago. Right. No, Moten God's Eye and Lucifer's Hammer and Footfall. Ring, Ringworld is 50 years old. Really? I don't think Moat is. Wow. So in terms of any, any tips or, or thoughts for an aspiring writer, what they can do, you know, like you said, it's, it's a different scene now that if you've got any particular tips, not necessarily for the, you know, you need to go on Amazon or you need to do this many emails, but in terms of the quality of writing, any advice on that, um, the importance of it, of still telling a good story? Yeah. Uh, one tip. Everything is, is for, everything you've written is for sale somewhat, somehow. Uh, a mode in God's eye, for instance, a perfect example. Uh, we were advised by uh, the, the best minds in the field. Uh, the the agent, uh, Jerry Purnell's agent, name escapes me for the moment, and Robert Heinlein, who was Jerry's, who knew knew us both, but was Jerry's longtime friend. We were both advised to chop off the first hundred pages of a mode in God's eye and get right to the meat of the story. And we did that. And then we sold uh, those those missing segments in uh, in two two stories. That's one a one a non one a non fact article. Wow, that's that's so. Don't waste anything. Yeah. In terms of when you come and you teach at the Writers of the Future workshop, when we will have it again, hopefully this coming April, you've got um, the various judges do different talks, and one of the talks that is given is given by yourself on on writing hard science fiction. Any particular points on that that you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, nothing leaps to mind. It's it's a fairly obvious thing. Yeah, I'll tell you. You have to stick closer to the to the actual science these days. The readers and critics are a little more picky than they were when I was writing my my early stuff. Uh, I was able to get away with uh, with fast and light travel and ultra hard materials and uh, stasis fields even, uh, all of which are very hard to justify in terms of, uh, in terms of, of modern science. And when I say modern science, I'm talking about 1913. Right, Einstein. Einstein. Right. So now, th that brings up a point. Prior to Einstein, Science was absolutely adamant about this is how the physical world works. Then Einstein came around, and now that was no longer how the physical world works. This is how the physical yeah. world works. What's to say that we're not going to have, you know, in the next decade, our, you know, unnamed person X that comes up with the new this is how this works in the physical world, 
that maybe could be inspired by a science fiction writer who puts together a plausible new science? Uh, I'm talking to writers, so let me say this for writers. Uh, whatever you decide works if you can make it plausible. Uh, for example, uh, the recent recent novels by uh, Werner Vinge, the Deepness in the Sky and the uh, Something of the Deep. Uh, he he changed the laws of physics for that one. He allowed physics to be more restrictive, getting toward the uh, galactic core, and looser and looser as, as you move outward. So we're we're about in the middle, Earth. Uh huh. So that was his thing uh, of a fire upon the deep. Yeah, I'll recommend these novels to anyone who thinks that science that you have to stick to, to today's science. You don't really. You, you can fudge things. Right. You just have to make it plausible. Right. Which is an art form. You yes. learn it. Yeah. Now, you've been a Writers of the Future judge since almost the beginning. And what is it about this, this uh, competition that was created by um, Mr. Hubbard in 1983 that has your support, your, you know, it's, what, what for you makes it so, so uh, important? It seemed a, a, a good thing that was being done. So, uh, so uh, somebody from uh, Hubbard's uh, outfit came to uh, Lasvis and started talking up the idea of uh, famous writers, a uh, writers of the future contest. Uh-huh. And uh, my part in it was to say, don't go cheap. Uh, I knew of a case in which, uh, in which they, they did go, go cheap, and it, uh, it, was, it was a well-known disaster. Uh, make the award worth going after. Right. And they did. Definitely. Yeah, I know Al just... And, and they invited me early to be a judge, and I, I of course, accepted. Uh, it gets me the, the chance to read good news stories. For sure. Yeah, that was... Um, I don't know if it would have been Al just Budras, because he was the first coordinating judge that went around and um, put together the first panel of, uh, of judges, and it's been growing since, and many of our judges now were winners from 20, 30 years ago. Yes. So, on with respect to what Rise of the Future has done overall, because now we're in our 38th year. We're starting, well, we're about ready to start our 38th year. We're just finishing off year 37 at the end of this month, and we're starting year 38. Um, I know Bob Silverberg said, I, you know, I would have been happy had it made 10 years, and so I spoke with him recently, and what he saw is the importance of, of, the, of the competition and what Mr. Hubbard had created as well as the importance of having judges who themselves are professional writers who grew up through traditional publishing. He's a strong believer of traditional publishing. What's your take on traditional public ver publishing versus the uh, online self-publishing? Okay, I have, not, I have not myself learned how to self-publish, but 
Jerry Purnell was good at it, and I just rode along with him. So my collabor my collaborations are generally in in print and ready. And Eleanor Wood of uh, Spectrum Literary Agency is skilled at this. So I've got I've gotten into into email uh, stories, email email sales uh, without any effort on my part. Right. So and, you, I, and I love it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you went through a literary agency, which you had, and that, that, that's taken you yeah. along because they then they shop you out and they get a, the best deals you can get. Yeah, as my stories fall out of print, uh, they get to be put on, on the uh, electronic board. And you do that, or you have somebody do that within your own, that you hire? Uh, or is Eleanor, it, Eleanor does it. That's just that. She, she, she still handles everything with the Israel Literary Agency. Yes, uh, she's training her son, so he's involved too. Okay. Justin. And then with respect to what you are, um, what we have to look forward to coming from you in, in, the, uh, in the future, near or medium future, what other types of projects are you working on? Is it short fiction or long fiction? Because I've seen you've done some short story compilations as well as novel so what do we what do we have to look forward to Stephen Barnes and I are working on a Gilly Arms story and that's all, all I see ahead of me right now uh, except for a story that is is, not, is moving so slow slowly that I'm tempted to call it stall okay <laughs> uh, Her Harrington is the guy's name and we've already done a novel together called uh, the, uh, the the Goliath Stone that that was published a few years ago. Uh -huh. uh, this this story ah, is older than uh, my career. <laughs> I was trying trying to become a writer, and my stepsister offered me a story somebody else had given up on. Uh, the the idea being there's a there's a there's an off ramp to the freeway that only exists between midnight and dawn. Well, that's a definitely interesting so premise. Harrington is running with that, but he's not running very fast. I hope we can get this done, but uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if we stalled. I get it. I get it. So, um, any other particular um, last bit uh, tips or advice that you've got for aspiring writers that we've not already discussed that you'd like to share? Um, put it this way, I've, uh, I've been seeking wisdom since I first started this job, and maybe before. And as fast as I know that something is, is an actual truth, I publish it. So uh, read my old stuff. Uh, if I haven't corrected it since, it's, uh, it's probably true. Good, good. Well, that's good advice. Your, your stories are obviously just a real pleasure to read. And um, you know, they, they, just, they hold up over time. Like you said, Ringworld's 50 years old. And it's, yeah. it's still just a real great read. I read it, you know, uh, not that long ago, 
And uh, I was just like, wow, this is, I mean, it's a great concept and it's, um, there's nothing that, there's nothing to dispute it and it makes sense physically. So that, you know, which is great. So you need a great concept to get a great novel. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any particular, um, if a person's not familiar with the, this, the span of your work as a great, here's my uh, Larry Niven primer, the, the first book that they can read to, to get a, a good feel for how you write, anything you recommend? Uh, primer. <laughs> well, for me, you know, it, it really depends who I'm talking to. Uh, if I'm talking to a, a mundane a person who doesn't read, read much science fiction or any, uh, I'll recommend Lucifer's Hammer. It's uh, it's it's mainstream fiction almost. Right. Uh, if uh, if they're looking for actual science fiction, I'd go Ringworld or The Integral Trees. I'll go The Integral Trees if it's hard science fiction they want. Uh, Ringworld isn't as isn't as hard as all that. Uh, I'll I'll recommend anything in the way of short stories. To, to, to people who don't have enough time to read much. Uh, I've done a lot of short stories. You have. Well, that's good, and that covers pretty much the spectrum of different types of readers of uh, the genre. So anything else I haven't asked you that you, you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about? Oh, probably. I'm, it turns out I'm not a self-starter. Right. Uh, it, it needs a... Uh, it needs an interviewer to set me off. Right. Yeah, because I was just, my main thing is um, a lot of people who want to get into writing science fiction, you know, the importance of getting your, your facts straight, but how to create that believable world where you can interject the, the unbelievable or the stretch of believability in it so it makes a very smooth transition I think it's really important, which is what you've done, at least in Ringworld. John, it turns out the readers will forgive mistakes. You do have to do your best to get everything right, but a mistake can be for forgiven if you write well enough. Uh, Ringworld, I started with the Earth rotating in the wrong direction in the, in the first few volumes, and that's the one that won all, all the awards. Others, let's see. In uh, I've written fantasy. The science, the science is is pitiful in the magic goes away series. Mm -hmm. But it's one of the one of the uh, the best basic ideas I've had. That uh, that magic wears out. That uh, magic is a non-renewable resource. And that was what story is that? That was The Magic Goes Away, and, uh, and a couple of collections by other writers labeled More, More Magic and uh, The Magic May Return. Okay. And uh, two novels by me and Jerry Purnell, uh, The Burning City and Burning Tower, um, all, all based on the idea that magic is a non-renewable resource that eventually wears out and leaves our current our current world. That's a fascinating concept, just in and of itself. Yes, 
and would explain why it doesn't exist now, but there's so many stories about it from years past. It explains why magic grows more powerful the further back into the past you reach. Exactly. And that, that's, that's, that's so very, gods are walking the earth. Yeah. That's very plausible the way you, you lay it up, present it like that. And I think that's something that people need to look at too, like thinking and thought through actually how much time did you spend developing your thoughts and your concepts as compared to, oh, here's an idea and just start and let it see and let the, the characters go and tell their own story. Do you do, you do that? It can happen fast or, or slow. Uh, I've spent more 10 years and more working on an idea. I had an idea for, uh, for the, for, uh, Stand by while I fish the title out of my head. It's Rainbow Mars, I called it. Uh -huh. I, I had the idea that Svets was going to, uh, to, to climb a beanstalk. And I finally caught the idea of setting it on Mars to start with. So that took a couple of years to, to create. So That took many years. Yeah. The, the Svets stories are from... Uh, from uh, the 70s and 60s. Mm -hmm. So do you find it's better when you actually do all the work up front, coming up, working out how the story begins and then how it's going to change and then how it's going to end up front? If I've got a decent idea to play with, I'll come up with more things as, as I write. Uh, the Ring World, for instance, I didn't have the... Uh, the eye storm when I started the book, it just popped into my head one day that uh, that a puncture hole in the ring world would develop a peculiar cloud formation like a like a human eye. Right. The the integral trees sort of wrote itself. Destiny's road took uh, took took a, a decade or two, and was turned in four years late. Right. Okay. Well, that's that 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 helps on the stuff. I'm just I'm just curious now. With you've been writing for what fifty years? Uh, more than that. I started in '63 uh, and sold my first story in '64, June. Right. Okay. So then, uh, fifty-six years. Are, yes. there any, are there any particular um, points in your career that stand out as the most memorable or your most favorite or the things that are like, okay, this is way cool, something that you thought was like the coolest? Anything in your 56 years that stands out more than others? There have been times when I felt like a real honest-to-God writer. Uh, two of those were writing the, the Burning City and Burning Tower with Jerry Fornell. We, we went on field trips. Uh, exploring the, uh, the territory, and that was a lot of fun, and uh, and very instructive. In the in the in the latter case, Burning Tower, we went as far as the the middle of the continent, the, the Continental Divide, uh, and stopped at various magical places along the way. Oh, that's uh, nice. With, Anything? With burning town, with the burning city, it was uh, it was the the uh, hemp road we called it. It it goes north into into across most of California. 
All right, so again, that was another one of your field trips that you did your research for your story? Uh, there, there was another time I felt like a real writer when Jerry and I were summoned to, uh, to a TV studio to watch, to watch most of, uh, of a movie called The Watcher in the Woods and then try to describe what we thought the ending ought to be like and then watch the, the actual ending they had on it. Watcher in the Woods was in big trouble at the time. Uh, they, they knew it, they knew they had a problem because they opened it outside of New York. Uh, what had happened, as it was described to me, was they took a children's book, The Watcher in the Woods, and uh, wrote wrote a movie and and made it while making changes as they went. Until when they got to the ending, the ending had disappeared. So they wrote up something that looked like it had come off the back of a uh, Japanese uh, critter flick. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were we were paid a, a flat fee to write a uh, an ending, and we did it, and it was a good one, and it wouldn't have been that expensive, but uh, but it would have been somewhat expensive. And we wrote it in conversation, sitting in Jerry Purnell's hot tub with snippers of brandy floating in front of us. <laughs> that felt like being a real writer. As a real writer. Okay, good. <laughs> Any other particular... Those are, those are two great stories. Any other particular highlights in your 56 years that stands out? This year, God, no. No, not uh, this year. Nothing stands out for this year. Starting, uh, starting in February or so, uh, we've been locked down against the uh, plague. Yeah. Well, yeah. all right. So that's good. I think we've, we've Marilyn and I both have our uh, have our medical problems. Very right. serious. But you're staying safe so that you're able to deal with your medical issues while still keeping on. Yeah. Seeing a lot of doctors. Yeah. Well, hopefully this whole thing comes to uh, uh, comes to pass. Hopefully by the end of this year, so that come April, we're able to see you at our Writer of the Future event and speak at the workshop. And because um, that's always such a fun week. Yeah, uh, I do miss the uh, Writers of the Future event. Yeah, missed this year, of course. Well, all right. So I really appreciate your giving me the time to uh, talk with you here. I think people will be listening to this are going to be just like, whatever he has to say, let me listen to it. And we, we covered a lot of different bases. We seemed like we bounced around a lot, but I had so many things I wanted to ask you that I appreciate you giving me the time to, uh, to just do this and, and to cover all these different areas because you do have an amazing career, an amazing background, and that you've gone between the various types of science fiction as well as fantasy successfully is something that others cannot just admire but try to emulate. And so with what you have to say, it gives them more tools with which to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. 
It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Goodbye, John. Okay, thank you very much, Larry.